The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Why don't we open with a word of prayer and just uh, pray for Chafer Seminary as we do so. Father, we're thankful that in your grace you have provided us with trained pastors who can accurately teach your word, rightly divide the word of truth, that we may be equipped, that we may grow and mature and advance in our spiritual life. We thank you for the men who had the vision to establish a seminary, for Dr. George Meisinger and his willingness to take on this responsibility for his church, Grace Chapel, and their support of the uh, mission of the seminary and their support of the seminary financially and with personnel. And, Father, we also pray for the future of the seminary, for the financial challenges, for the personnel challenges. We pray that you would provide these needs. And, Father, we, above all, we pray that you would keep us true to your word, that we may prepare men in the future that can staff the pulpits of so many churches who want teaching pastors who can come and exegete the word and teach it in such a way that we can learn the breadth and depth of your word and apply it in our lives. Father, now as we come together to worship you this morning, we pray that our focus will be brought to your grace and your character, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning for a scripture reading for Psalm, from Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I'll read the first eight verses. This is set up on an acronym beginning. Each stanza begins with a Hebrew word that begins with the first letter of the alphabet for the first stanza and then the second letter of the alphabet for the second stanza and so on. So there's about eight verses in each section. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk... In the Lord, law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his way. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with the uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, again, we express our gratitude for your grace that you have provided everything for us, starting with perfect salvation, a complete salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as our substitute. He was a living word who was incarnate in order to explain and reveal you to us. He is also the source of the written word, which is his thinking. And as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us, challenge us with the application of the word in each of our lives, that we may continue to advance and grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the course of a study of basic doctrines related to the Christian life, foundation for living. We looked at basic skills for the Christian life, followed up by the basics of the priesthood, the basic responsibilities of the believer priest. We started off by looking at prayer, and then last week and this week we're looking at the role of the Word of God in the life of the believer priest. Last time we introduced this by going to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12:1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we saw that the word beseech means to urge someone or challenge someone to a particular course of action. It's based on the mercies of God, that is, the character of God, especially as Paul has explained this in the previous chapters of Romans, which is an outline of the righteousness of God and God's grace. He says, I beseech you, I challenge you on the basis of your understanding of grace, that as a result of knowledge you offer, present your bodies, that is, your entire person, as a living sacrifice. That's the point of the command. It is a challenge to every believer that once you come to understand certain things about God, His character, what He's provided for us at salvation, that that challenges each of us to a particular response, a particular course of action. This is related to our priesthood, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. And I pointed out last time that this word sacrifice means to offer something to deity, something of value. It is the giving up of something or setting aside of something of value, such as time, money, energy, in order to do something that has a more significant purpose, uh, specifically in relationship to serving God or studying the Word so that our thinking is transformed. That's the point of the second verse. This is then defined as our reasonable service, according to the translation of the New King James. The word in the Greek indicates that which pertains to reason. It's based on rational thought, intelligent meditation, reflection upon the Word of God and the implications and instructions contained therein. That's the concept of reasonable The New American Standard translates this, your spiritual service of worship, which somehow loses the significance of that Greek word uh, logikos, which indicates that rational foundation for our spiritual service. The last word translated service is the Greek word latreia, which indicates service given to a Deity, hence its Christian service, duties and responsibilities of a believer in serving God. And that starts with knowing God's Word. It begins with an understanding of God's instruction to us. It's not just getting saved and then automatically getting involved in all kinds of church activities. That's a standard uh, 
MO for most churches. I remember when I was a young pastor and I was talking to an older pastor who said, told me, thought he was giving me good advice, said, now, now, son, if you want to really grow your church, as soon as you have visitors come a second time, you need to start getting them involved in some sort of function in the church so that they feel like they have responsibility and ownership. And I, and I said, well, that's not how I do things. I want to make sure they have some spiritual growth and knowledge under their belt. And frankly, I don't want anybody doing anything until they've been sitting there for a couple of years and understand what the church is all about and have a foundation in the Word of God. Well, he just really didn't understand that. But see, that's the standard MO for church growth and development today. That's why so many of these churches that are growing to such a large size uh, do so. They, they implement these kinds of things, but they water down doctrine and teaching in the process so nobody knows anything about uh, anything about the Scripture. The word Latreia is a word that is used in the con- context of ritual worship to the Lord in terms of the Old Testament. So it's a focus of our priesthood. It's a focus of the ministry of the believer's priesthood. And then this is expanded in the second verse. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or this is actually a metamorphosis. It's a complete overhaul, a complete renovation of our thinking. That is the process of the Christian life. We grow up being conformed to the thinking of this age, the thinking of the culture around us, the thinking that is typical of the time period in which we lived. The word in the Greek here is ionos, which indicates that zeitgeist, that thinking that characterizes the age in which we live. We're not to be conformed to it, but we're brainwashed with it as we grow up. You're brainwashed with it from the teachers you you have in school, your peers. You're brainwashed with it from the media, from the te- television that you watch, the television shows, the novels you read. Everything just communicates these ideas in a, in a multiplicity of different ways. So the process of the Christian life is to overhaul your thinking so that the values that are established, the values that are established that you grew up with that are in your soul and anchored in your soul, they're basically human viewpoint, need to be taken out, examined, reevaluated, restructured in terms of the divine viewpoint framework of Scripture. And this has a purpose that we can prove, or that is to demonstrate in our life, it is a physical testimony that as we live on the basis of the Word of God, it demonstrates to the angels and to the rest of the human race that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. So this tells us that a primary function, in fact, the foundational function of our priesthood is to orient our thinking to the Word of God. We must recognize that the Bible is important, first of all, because it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is not given by inspiration of God, but literally breathed out by God. He is the source of Scripture, and He does this through human authors. And He oversees the process in such a way that He can guarantee that what they write is free from error. 
At the same time, he uses their background, their training, their own individual literary styles, their own individual educational backgrounds. All of these things are utilized so that you read different authors. In the Old Testament, you have Moses, you have Ezekiel, you have Isaiah. Each author has their own, their own style, their own vocabulary, their own way of expressing things. You get into the New Testament, you have the same thing. Paul, Peter, John, each one is given different levels of revelation from God, different information which they write down. Each one comes from different backgrounds. Paul had one of the greatest educations in the ancient world. He was educated in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, which was the uh, the greatest education system for rabbis in the ancient world. He was absolutely brilliant, one of the most brilliant minds in the ancient world. On the other hand, you have Peter, who was a businessman. He was a fisherman. Uh, too many people think of that, and they think of an idea of somebody sitting out on the bank of the river casting uh, uh, their fishing line out into the into the lake or just having a small boat and nets, but they had a significant uh, business. They had several boats and they had uh, people who worked for them. That's what enabled Peter and John to travel around with Jesus so much. You ever think about that? Where'd they get their money? They had a business that was being run. They were in partnership with their father and uh, uh, James and John and, and Peter and Andrew and they had this business that helped support them. But they weren't educated in the same way that Paul was. So that the inspiration of God used that work of God breathing out through them, used their different backgrounds, their different personalities, and that comes through in their writing. So the Word of God, the Bible, is important because it is the Word of God. It comes from God. It is God communicating His will, His purpose, His plans to us. And so we need to read that in order to understand it. The second reason it's important is because it's the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So it is God, it is the Word of God which is breathed out by God, and the Scripture is the thinking of Jesus Christ. So this means that for the believer, nothing should be more important than to know how God would have you to think and what God would have you to think about different issues in life. The Bible addresses almost every, or it does address every, or gives you the foundation for dealing with every uh, critical issue in life. And many of these are debated. Many of these are, are very complicated issues. And so we go to the Scripture to give us that framework to think about these things. And the Bible talks about how valuable this is. And so we go in the Psalms to Psalm 19. Two of the most important Psalms related to the Word of God are Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Psalm 119 uses a variety of different words in the Hebrew to talk about the Word of God. It talks about the ordinance of God, the precepts of God, the testimony of God, the law of God. And so it is a meditation on the importance of knowing the Word of God, the priority of the Word of God. And that's why I've chosen to read through Psalm 119 on Sunday mornings. Now in Psalm 19, we read, starting in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
So it transforms the soul. That's the idea of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord. Notice the writer of Psalm 19 does the same thing as the writer of Psalm 119 uses these various synonyms to describe the the Scripture. The law of the Lord, then the second stanza of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it is a four-verse meditation, or three-verse meditation, on the value of the Word of God. And then the conclusion is given in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. In other words, knowledge of the Scripture, putting it into practice in your life, is more important than anything else. It's more important than your job. It's more important than income. It's more important than the most valuable things that you can think of having in life. And so you need to put the pursuit of your spiritual life and the knowledge of the Word over and above everything else in life. Verse 11 goes on to say, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. This is one of the reasons you not only need to be in Bible class learning the Word, but also reading the Word for yourself on a regular basis. You get up in the morning and you read through a chapter or five chapters in the Word. You're reminded of principles. You are reminded about promises. And you're challenged in your thinking. And you're reminded about what God's standards are. So that this is something you can take with you through the day. And when you have opportunity, you can stop and reflect upon these basic principles that you discover in reading the Word. It is important for every believer to read the Word. Somehow people get the idea that, well, I might get confused. Well, if that's your criteria, you shouldn't read anything, because anything can confuse you. The morning newspaper can confuse you. You read the editorials in the, in the uh, New York Times or the Houston Chronicle, you get really confused. So let's not read anything. No, that's not the solution. In any endeavor in life, as you're growing in knowledge about something... There's always a stage in that freshman period where well, you're not really sure how to put everything together and you do get confused and you have a lot of questions. Well, that's good. Uh, I used to have a, a professor in college who used to say it's more important to know the right questions than the right answers. And he's absolutely correct. You need to think about things and that's why God's revealed the Word the way He has, is to cause us to think and to interact with what He has said. Biblically, this is known as meditation. It's not the Eastern religious concept of meditation where you just sort of empty your mind of everything but a sound or a syllable and just focus on that. It is the idea of thinking deeply about something. And this means you should, when you read the Bible, you should also have a spiral notebook or pad or something where you can jot down your thoughts and questions that come up so that it helps you to focus your thinking and not just, you know, we all do this. We start reading something and and we see a word or a phrase or something happens peripherally and all of a sudden our mind is somewhere else. You ever have that happen? And next thing you know, you've read a whole chapter and you don't know what you just read. But your eyes were going across those verses, but you're thinking about things later on in the day or something that happened yesterday whatever it may be. And so by keeping a pad and pen there 
helps you to focus your thinking on what you're doing. Underline verses. If you read a verse, you say, boy, that, I don't know, that doesn't seem to jive with what I've heard over here. Just put a question mark next to the margin, something like that, and then go back and look at it later. We'll look at some tips for reading through the Bible in just a minute. It's called meditation. It's focused thought, concentration on what you're reading. The Lord told Moses, I mean, told Joshua in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, which was the Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch that Moses had written, as these, and part of the law was the standard for the leadership of Israel. And in that, especially in the section dealing with kings, the king was to hand write, hand write out a copy of the law every year in the presence of the priest. He just couldn't cop out and have a little quiet time up in his uh, private uh, chambers. He had to sit down in the presence of priests where there was accountability and handwrite out a copy of the law every year to remind him of what God expected of him. So this would, same kind of thing was expected of Joshua as the leader of the nation. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. This is a verse that uh, perhaps you should memorize. I think I memorized this verse about 30 years ago before I ever went to seminary. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now that's an interesting phraseology there because the word that's translated meditate in verse 8 is the Hebrew word Hagah. It's not the primary word for meditation. And it means to utter, to mutter, to moan, uh, to, or to mourn, and the King James translates it that way. It means to meditate and to devise something or to plot something, to plan something. The, I, the primary root meaning of the word is to utter or mutter. It means to say something out loud. And so Joshua is commanded, don't let this depart from your mouth. It's the idea of reading it out loud, thinking it out loud, where when you read it out loud, you're also hearing it. And so you're you're reading it, you're hearing it through your ear, and so it's hitting your brain at different levels. The word came to mean to to think deeply about something and to discuss it to talk about it with others. So, okay, I read these verses this morning. I read this chapter. And it's very interesting what it said. And just talk with friends about this and and the the reflections that you have. So it's not something you just read in private and then keep it to yourself. So the And the root idea of muttering or whispering suggested that in this practice, they said it out loud. They They just rehearsed it out loud. So Joshua is told, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Note, it's not just a matter of being aware of what's said. It's not just an academic exercise, but it is a study that is designed to transform and to change the way you live that you may observe to do according to all that is written in its application. Result, in the last phrase, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. In other words, as a result of the application of God's Word, you will be successful in carrying out the mission 
that God has for you. For Joshua, it was one thing. For each of us as church-age believers, it's something else. Nevertheless, we will have uh, prosperity in our spiritual life and spiritual growth and success in our spiritual life if we put the Word of God at the foremost place. Psalm 119.15 uses the word meditation in a different sense. It's a different Hebrew word. Psalm 119.15 states, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. So there's a parallelism here in the two stanzas in Psalm 119. The first word that is translated meditate is the Hebrew word siach means to meditate, to muse, to commune, to speak, and in some cases even to complain. It has the root idea of going over something repeatedly in the mind, to think it through. That means to think about its implications and its applications. What are the inferences? It has the idea of taking a verse apart and then putting it back together. It would bring into... Uh, and to bear the whole concept of doing analysis of Scripture, where you perform word studies on the words, where you uh, look at the grammar and the syntax in the original languages, and to take that verse apart. And even though uh, you do not have the gift of pastor-teacher, and even though you haven't gone to seminary, that doesn't mean that the average believer can't do this. That's why one of the classes that's so popular over at the College of Biblical Studies is a class on Bible study methods. The tools that are available to the average believer today to get into the Word are just tremendous, from computer tools to in-print books that can help you understand the Scriptures that you're reading at uh, at a little deeper level. And that's what meditation means. This is a challenge to every believer are a model for every believer. I will meditate on your precepts. And secondly, I will contemplate your ways. This second word, translated contemplate, is the Hebrew word navat, which means to look at something or to regard it. It has the idea of thinking something through with sustained contemplation and concentration. So you take a verse and you decide that this verse is a promise, and you need to memorize it. So you memorize it. You repeat it over and over again. You say it out loud. You repeat it to yourself. You think about, okay, what does this mean? You think through the phrases, how they relate to each other. You think about the words that are used in the English. You can look those words up in an English dictionary. If you have a concordance, such as Strong's Concordance or Young's Concordance, then you can look those words up, and they will give you... Uh, usually in Strong's there's a number off to the side of the verse and that number is connected to a, a very rudimentary Greek or Hebrew dictionary in the back of the Strong's Concordance and you can go back there and this gives you a root definition uh, for the Greek or the Hebrew word and you can look that up and see how that word is used in other passages in the Uh, Old Testament or in the New Testament. And so this is that process of thinking through what the verse means. It's not just a matter of reading it. It's taking it to a different level. And every single uh, believer can do this. 
Psalm 119.23 uses this word as well. It says, Princes also speak, also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates, that thinks through, and concentrates on your statutes. Psalm 119.48 My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And then Psalm 119.78 Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. So it's not just the act of studying the Bible in isolation from life. In each of these verses, there are life situations referred to that in the first place there's slander against the writer. In the second uh, verse that I mentioned, Psalm 119.48, focuses on the priority of the commandments. And then Psalm 119.78, again, is dealing with those who have lied and treated him wrongly. And instead of of uh, focusing on retaliation, on anger or resentment. The focus is to meditate on the precepts of God. Now let's talk about the process a little bit, and I want to give you a little illustration. Because somehow, again, people have gotten this idea that, that well, I can't really read the Bible for myself. Somehow there's, there's this... this uh, almost a mystical view of the original languages that if I knew Greek or Hebrew, then I wouldn't get confused. Now, you just get confused on different things. It's not a matter that uh, once you know the original languages, it solves all the problems. Language just doesn't function that way. Uh, it helps. It's always better to read a writer in the original than in a translation, but that doesn't resolve all of the, all of the different problems. God has designed his word in such a way that it can be translated in any language. And if the translation is a good translation, then you can learn solid biblical truth that can help you in your spiritual life and in your spiritual growth. In contrast, the Quran is written in Arabic, and according to Islamic theology, you can't get anywhere unless you read it in Arabic. That's why all Muslims are supposed to learn Arabic so they can read the Quran in Arabic. It's a mystical and rigid view of language that's very different from the biblical view of language. For example, biblically we know God created all language. So therefore God is able to communicate truth in all language. He's not restricted to just one language. This gives the Bible, uh, adds to that quality of it being alive and powerful. Now, we must admit that the everyday believer is not going to get everything out of, out of the Scriptures that someone with the gift of pastor teacher who is trained is going to get out of the Scriptures. But the difference is, if I may use this analogy, the difference between someone who's panning for gold and someone who's a graduate of uh, the Colorado School of Mines and Engineering. The difference is somebody who is trained to get to go deep into the ground and to find the rich, thick veins of gold and to come out with tremendous wealth versus a person who can learn basic rudimentary skills and pan for gold in a stream and still come up with a certain amount of value, or he can even learn to go upstream and find where the, where the gold is coming off or it's breaking off and washing down in the stream, and he can dig there a little more deeply and find some more gold. You, 
you're not restricted in the scriptures to just dependency on the pastor teacher. The pastor teacher is the one who communicates the word. It is a communication gift. So we have to recognize that every believer has the ability to read the word, to understand the word, and to call some value from the reading of the word. But you're not going to grow to spiritual maturity just on the basis of your own personal study. That's why God provided men with the gift of pastor teacher, because these men have communication gifts, and God, and if they're trained, then they have the ability to dig more deeply into the word and to find that rich, deep, thick vein of gold and to bring that information to the congregation so that they in turn can learn and apply and grow to spiritual maturity. Well, what are the implications of this? Well, one implication is that we have to value as a church the training of ministers and seminaries. We have to make that a priority. Paul in Second Timothy told Timothy that part of his responsibility as a pastor was to commit the things that were entrusted to him to faithful men. That's part of the responsibility of the pastor, not just to train the congregation, not just to feed the sheep, not just to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but also to identify and train and challenge uh, young men in the congregation who have the gift of pastor-teacher and to develop them so that they, in turn, can fulfill their role in the body of Christ. Second principle, though there are self-taught doctors and lawyers and financial advisors that may be very good, few of us would really trust our lives to those individuals. We need to have well-trained, well-equipped pastors who can exegete the scriptures for themselves. They're not dependent on others, men who learn to think critically so that they can go to the Scriptures. The, the gold standard in the, in the Christian life is what does the Bible say? Too often what's happened in the last 30 or 40 years in evangelical Christianity is that the gold standard becomes some pastor-teacher. And I remember when I was in seminary beginning to notice this, that, that in papers and in discussions, other students would say, well this pastor says this and that pastor says this and this other pastor says this and I kept thinking that sounds a lot like what was happening in Judaism at the time of Christ what happened in Judaism was that you studied what all the rabbis said and so you would you get into the Mishnah and what you discover is they, they bring up a controversial or debated point and then they say well rabbi so and so says this and this is his argument and rabbi so and so says the opposite and this is his argument and then rabbi so and so says this and this is his argument but you never come to a conclusion you never understand this is what the word of god says and that's why in the gospels it was so striking to the people who heard jesus that they said this man speaks as one who has authority jesus didn't come along and say well rabbi uh, Shammai said this, and Rabbi Hillel said this, and Rabbi Gamaliel said this. He said, Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Word says. Truly, truly, I say unto you. He spoke as one who had authority. He said, This is what the Word of God says. And in many seminaries today, they have slipped into this uh, academic mode 
where they teach the students that here's Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and there's five different positions on the relationship between these two verses to one another. Uh, Go, be warm, and be filled. Bless you, my son. And they never learn how to reach a conclusion as to what is actually said there. So they go out into the pulpits of the churches, and they say, and you ask them a question, what does it say? They say, well, you know, there's five views on that. Okay, but what does it say? Well, I don't know. We didn't get that far in my classes in seminary. We just know what the five views are. And that's not the way it was, for example, at Dallas Seminary back in up until the early 80s. And uh, one oldie-goldie professor there made the observation that when they changed the purpose statement of Dallas Seminary to where it was no longer just to train pastors, but it was trained to train Christian leaders that over a period of four or five years there was this subtle shift from this is what the passage means. And he, he, he recognized a well-known name. He said even in his classes, he said, I, I quit teaching, this is what the text says, and I've gradually shifted to these are the five different views you need to understand about the passage. Now you need to know what those five views are if you're a scholar of the Word. But you need to know which is right and which is wrong and why it's right and why the others are wrong. You need to be able to think it through. So this is all, all part of seminary training. And I understand from talking to a faculty member up there recently that, that uh, this has sort of reached a crisis point and finally some people in authority there recognizing that there need to be some changes and there's some corrections uh, that are being done. That's good. But we have to realize that the Bible teaches specific things and we have to teach the Word, teach what the Word says. So the gift of pastor-teacher, the third principle, is a gift of pastor-teacher, though, is a communication gift. It's not a revelatory gift. Now, think about that. The gift of pastor-teacher is a communication gift. It's not a revelatory gift. God doesn't speak to me any differently than He speaks to you. He speaks only through His Word. He's not, and the, the filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't guarantee that when I am in fellowship with the Lord, that what I study and what my conclusions are are going to be right. That's a Catholic doctrine known as papal infallibility. We don't believe that. I can be wrong. I have been wrong. I've misinterpreted Scripture. I, it's a growth process for, for every pastor. God the Holy Spirit teaches us, but on the basis of whatever our background is and tools, and we go through the process of growing and learning the Word. Being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, is not a guarantee of infallibility. This isn't a process of revelation. The pastor doesn't go into his study and study the Word and have truth revealed to him in that sense. And too often I've heard people say, well, you know, such and such a pastor said this, therefore it must be right because he's a pastor teacher. Folks, we're Protestants. We're not Roman Catholics. The pastor is not infallible. He doesn't speak ex cathedra. He doesn't have the right to claim an inerrantist position on what he teaches from the Scripture so that he can be challenged. Now, how do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul, and I'm not talking about, you know, Joe Snodgrass, who shows up in Berea with his, you know, with his interlinear Bible, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul shows up in Berea, and he praises the Berean because they didn't take him at his word. They searched the Scriptures daily to see that what I said was so. Now, if 
The Apostle Paul is praising the Bereans because after he taught Bible class, they went home and got their Bibles out and their concordances out, and they checked up on his references and made sure that what he taught was right. What do you think you ought to be doing? Going home, studying what I teach, backing up, making sure this is what the Scripture says. You don't just sit there with your mind in neutral and just suck in anything that any pastor says. You're to go home and search the Scriptures. So that challenges the believer to go to another level in his own Bible study, his own personal uh, reading of the Scriptures, so that he comes to understand the Scriptures uh, at, a, at a higher level for himself, and that strengthens and builds your soul in the Christian life. So you have to pay attention to Acts I have it here, Acts 17.11. Concerning the Bereans, Luke wrote, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, they had a strong positive volition, and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were checking up on the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul is getting direct revelation from God. The Apostle Paul is an apostle. He's not just a pastor-teacher. The Apostle Paul is... The Apostle Paul. But they're checking up on him. So if that's true about him, what about the local pastor later on in the church age? So how are you to read the Bible? What are some tips, some guidelines for just your own personal Bible reading? Well, first of all, create a schedule. Whether it's in the morning or noon or in the evening, Pick a, pick a time that's your time where you can sit and read the Bible free from distractions. Have a notebook. Have a plan. Have a schedule. Don't start off reading your Bible in First Chronicles. By the time you get to the end of the second chapter, you'll get, why did he say I need to read the Bible? And it's nothing but a list of, of uh, genealogies for nine chapters. It has a purpose and significance for, for the nation Israel, and it's the inspired Word of God, but but you'll just throw it out. The same thing happens, you start off with Matthew. You may start off with Matthew 1.1 and get down to about verse 15 and say, boy, this is really boring. I don't understand any of this. I remember when I was in the fifth grade and the Gideons came into school. Back then they'd come into school and give you a little New Testament. Remember that? And I still have mine. Every now and then I run into a little maroon New Testament. I said, I'm going to read my Bible. I read through Matthew 1. I got down to about verse 10. I went, boy, this is really tough stuff. So uh, start someplace like the Gospel of John or Book of Acts, or even if, you're, if you've never read through the Bible yourself, get a, get, get a paraphrase, a living Bible, because you're reading more to get the flow and the structure at this point than you are for, for any heavy, heavy doctrine. And I'll talk about that in just, just a minute. That's what I do when I was in college. I realized I just didn't know the Old Testament. I didn't know uh, Jephthah. From Japheth, and so I figured I better better read the Old Testament. But I start reading it in King James, and I just get lost. And so I was down at a little Bible bookstore they had in Nacogdoches, and there was this book called the Old Testament Digest. It was sort of a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament based on um, based on the Living Bible. And it left out all the genealogies and a lot of the details in the law, and it just basically gave you the flow of historical narrative. And I read through that in, in about two or three weeks. And when that was over with, I had a, just a framework for understanding who lived when, where, in relationship to who. And, and after that, then when I read 
in the King James or New American Standard, it made more sense because I had created that historical framework. So you need to create a schedule, a time period free from distraction. Second, if you commute to work, you have a long commute and you go back and forth, you could get some of these uh, books on tape, Bible lessons, where somebody's reading Charlton Heston or somebody's reading the Bible, and you can listen to it that way while you're driving in the car, along with listening to tapes of teaching. Third idea, set a goal. Read 15 minutes a day. If you haven't done this, sometimes you get it. Some people say, well, I'm going to read five chapters a day. Well, if it's a chapter like Psalm 117, which is two verses, then you may be able to crank out five or six chapters in, uh, in, in the morning. But sometimes you hit some really long chapters, and you've only read two chapters in 30 minutes, and then you can get frustrated. So what I suggest sometimes is just pick a time frame. I'm going to read for 20 minutes. Whether that's two chapters or five chapters or ten chapters, I'm going to read for 20 minutes. So set a goal and keep to that schedule, something that you can reasonably and realistically accomplish. Fourth point, keep a notebook handy. Jot down questions, jot down thoughts, jot down observations and applications that come to mind. Make your applications personal. Even when you're taking notes here, Try to personalize the applications and say, I need to do something. If I say, you know, every believer needs to do X, Y, or Z, when you write down notes, don't depersonalize it by saying every believer needs to do X, Y, and Z. Put down, I need to do X, Y, and Z. That makes it personal in terms of application. Questions you can come later. You can catch me after class, ask me questions. People do that all the time. We're trying to get to a point where we can set up a Q&A section on the DBM website where people can email questions in and then I can uh, uh, post the ones that are decent and put them up on the, on the website. You know, that way I have some editorial control. Fifth suggestion, underline promises. Start marking up your Bible. Underline promises, put question marks by verses, uh, put notes in the top margin so you can go back and find those verses later on. Uh, if you come to a section and you just don't understand what it says, just put a question mark and move on. Don't get bogged down, point, which is point six. Don't get bogged down in detail. That's what happens when people first start reading the Scripture for themselves. Sometimes they say, well, I read all this and I just didn't know. what. I just got so overwhelmed by the detail. Don't get bogged down. Just You're just skimming the surface right now and just picking up the main flow and the main ideas. You can come back again and read it again. You ought to make a plan. They have a Bible out called Through the Bible in a Year. And you can pick up one of those, and that gives you a schedule. Two weeks from now, we're going to have New Year's. Everybody's going to make New Year's resolutions. It's a great time to, to uh, start reading through the Bible in a year. Seventh suggestion, learn to use some basic research tools or resources, such as a Bible dictionary or an encyclopedia. You have various different Bible encyclopedias available, Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, uh, New, uh, International, ISBE, International uh, Standard Bible Encyclopedia was revised not long ago, or even a commentary. And I recommend the two-volume set that was done by professors of Dallas Seminary about 1980 called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. One volume on the New Testament, one volume on the Old Testament. Each book is written by a different professor, each commentary. So it's not, even though out on the outside it says Walvard and Zuck, John Walvard and Roy Zuck did not write it. They were the editors. Each At the beginning of each book it tells you who 
who they were. And many of those men were, I know almost all of them, they were all professors of mine. That was all written during the period when I was in seminary. And some, some commentaries on some books are better than others, but as a whole, it is vastly superior to anything else that you can buy and print in terms of a one or two volume commentary. Eighth, look at maps and charts in your own Bible. When you're reading the Old Testament and it mentions different places and different, different uh, geographical locations, rivers, cities, towns, countries, turn to the back of your Bible and look at the maps. Become familiar with the geography of Israel and the Middle East. Ninth, read the genealogies as if they're your own genealogy. Don't get bogged down and say, well, this, why should I read this? I don't know what this is all about. Think about the fact most of those genealogies are there because they're leading up to Jesus Christ. So think about that in terms of how the God is anchoring everything that is said in the Scripture into historically real people. And think about those genealogies as your own background. Okay, now I want to cover two more questions very quickly because we're about out of time, but it comes up all the time. Two questions people always ask. What translation should I read? And what study Bible should I use? Now, the, 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 eventually I'm going to do whole classes on both of these because they're very, there's a lot that goes into this and it's very complicated. So the first question, what translation should I read? And in answering this question, there are really two issues you have to address. Number one is, what is the theory of translation that underlies that, that translation version? Whether it's King James Version, New King James, New International Version, uh, The Message, which is the version I love to hate. Uh, any of these, what, what underlies the translation theory? And the secondly is the, the view of textual criticism that the, that the authors refer to. Now, textual criticism is a, is a very complicated subject in and of itself. You basically have two views. That is the view that what's in the majority of manuscripts is, is, should be the original text. And the other view is that the older, the older uh, manuscripts are the better manuscripts. And that sounds good to people. But if you have a, an 8th century A.D. translation that's, ba- that's a perfect copy of a 2nd century one that's been lost, and you have a 4th century copy of a third century that was had mistranscriptions mis, uh, uh, in it, which is better. The eighth century is going to be better than the fourth century. So just because it's older doesn't mean it's better. And I could go into a lot of things, but you basically have these two breakdowns where the King James and the New King James are based on what was called the Textus Receptus. That wasn't a good, that, that wasn't a, a, a really good critical edition. It was only based on eight. Uh, rather old manuscripts that weren't in the best of condition. Uh, it's not the same as the majority text view, but it's closer than what's called the critical text view. The critical text is the older is better idea, and nearly all of your modern translations, the New American Standard, NIV, New English Version, and they multiply the English Standard Version just coming out. I mean, these, these translations are multiplying like rabbits. And uh, so it pays to also know something about, I mean, as a pastor, I know I can look at these and say, okay, who, who was on the translation team? And I can look at those names and I can tell you what their theological presuppositions are 
and tell you whether I think that's going to be a, a better or worse uh, translation. You have to know something about, also know something about translation theory. On the left of the slide, you see formal equivalence, and on the right, you see uh, paraphrase. Formal equivalence tries to be as close to the original wording as possible. Now, that's not always possible. If any of you have ever taken a foreign language or know anything about foreign language, the wording structure in inflected languages can be quite different from the way we would structure it in English. So there has to be some shift to make it understandable and readable in English. But a formal equivalence tends to be more literal and therefore less interpretive. It's more literal and less interpretive. This would be the King James Version, New King James Version, New American Standard Bible are are more like more in the realm of formal equivalence. As you move away from that in the direction of dynamic equivalence, this becomes less literal and more interpretive. Less literal and more interpretive. For um, uh, for example, in German, the standard greeting would be "Wie geht es Ihnen," which literally is "How goes it with you." Now, we would translate that into English, how are you doing? That would be more formal. Uh, how, if, if you were truly formal, the straight, you'd say, how is it going with you? Well, that sounds awful wooden and stilted in English. So you translate it, how are you doing? That's, there's a little bit of a dynamic equivalence there, but um, there's a number, number of different slang ways that people could say the same thing. And that moves in that direction of paraphrase or dynamic, uh, dynamic equivalence. So the more you move across that slide to the right into the realm of dynamic equivalence and paraphrase, the more you get away from a real strict translation of the scriptures. You can read paraphrase or dynamic equivalence to get the thought flow, but not for a study Bible. And, and uh, for example, I just have a couple I wanted to look at. You have the New King James. And what I've got on the screen is James 2. We'll look at James 2, 14 and 15. And just to compare the differences, the New King James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? That's pretty close to the original. James 2.14 in the NIV says, What good is it, my brother? See, it's moved from what is it profit to what good is it, my brethren, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds. Shift from works to deeds. Can such a faith save him? Then the message says, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? See how that has so shifted away from the from what's expressed in the in the New King James. Then in James two fifteen, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, uh, James two fifteen in the NIV says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And James two fifteen in the Message, for instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved. Well, brother or sister is a technical term for another believer. Old friend isn't. So you see, see, you really lose the 
uh, original meaning. Now, let's, let's do this. I'm going to go to Romans 6, 1 through 3 in each of, the ver- each of those translations. The New King James says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's New King James. NIV. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. See, in the King James it says certainly not. The, he, the Greek is meganoita, which is a very strong, uh, you know, God forbid. Uh, by no means waters it down some. We died to sin. How can we live, live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, the NIV is more dynamic equivalence. Now, neither of these examples which I pick really show flaws in the NIV. The, one of the worst flaws I've seen, I've seen in the NIV is in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, a passage that is familiar to most of us where it talks about the carnal believer in the King James. That's where we get the term carnal. If any of you are carnal, the New American Standard translates it fleshly, which is still a good translation. If any of you are fleshly, the NIV says, if any of you are worldly. Huh? Worldly is either cosmos or ionos. It has nothing to do with sarkikos, which is the Greek word for flesh. So there you get an interpretation rather than a, than a translation. That's why my friend uh, Wayne House refers to the NIV as a new international commentary. And that's what happens. The more dynamic you become, the more the theological orientation of the translator comes into play, and he's writing a little more of a commentary than a strict translation. Then we get the message. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, where does that come from? How can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? This is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life and a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. See how interpretive that is. That's not translation, that's interpretation. And, and that's not really, that's bordering on, on paraphrase. So you have to understand the theory of, of, of the translation of the language which brings into bear your whole theory of linguistics. And most linguistic theory today is influenced by postmodernism. And dynamic equivalence is the dominating view of modern translations. So you have to be very careful there. I recommend that for, a, for study Bible, for studying the word, use either New King James or New American Standard. One of those two, not the NIV, even though I had a number of professors at, and seminary who were on trans, the translation committee of the NIV, uh, I, would not, uh, I would not recommend it because it's too dynamic. It's too interpretive. And then the second question, what study Bible should I use? Well, there's no study Bible that's going to nail everything the way I think it ought to be nailed. There's no study Bible out there that's always going to give the right answer in the notes. Each one has strengths and weaknesses. The Nelson Study Bible is one I, I most recommend. 
It's strong in that it has extensive notes. It has good maps. Generally, the orientation of the translators is a position of free grace. Wayne House was, oversaw the New Testament. Uh, Earl Rodmacher, who used to be the president of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, is a strong proponent of free grace, salvation, was a general editor, and uh, they, they did a very good job. The notes tend to be tra- traditional, dispensational, though there are some variants in a few places, and the Nelson Study Bible is available only in the New King James Version. The one place where I see the biggest challenge and is in the notes related to the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The trend in modern scholarship today is to reject those passages as referring to the fall of Satan. And they all say, well, this just refers to some Canaanite myth. Well, I've done a lot of research on this. There's no Canaanite myth. There's no ancient Near Eastern myth that anything in either of those chapters could conceivably uh, refer to. It is, and I'm convinced it refers to the fall of Satan, but you'll go, I think Ryrie, Ryrie Study Bible Notes still affirms that as the fall of Satan. There's the LaHaye, the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, and that's good as it regards to charts related to prophecy and the notes related to prophecy, but it only has notes related to prophecy. Not, they, they don't find explanatory notes on uh, everything, just on the on prophetic things. The Ryrie Study Bible. Oh, the LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible is available in New King James, and it might be available in uh, one other translation. The Ryrie Study Bible is available in King James. I, don't, it's, I have a New King James, but it's not available in New King James anymore. It's available in New American Standard, King James, and NIV, I believe. It's consistent because Dr. Charles Ryrie, who was the head of the theology department at Dallas Seminary for many years and under whom I studied, and I count him a personal friend, wrote all the notes. So there's that consistency of a single person's perspective, which is like you have in the Schofield Reference Bible. It is traditional dispensational in his notes. He has an excellent summary of doctrine at the back of the uh, at the back back section, a good section on other notes on other things related to Bible study as well. But it's not as extensive as as for example the Nelson Study Bible because one man just can't do it all. The Schofield Reference Bible is similar. It's one man's perspective. It's traditional, dispensational, premillennial. It's dated, though. Schofield made some errors. He thought that the that you were that Jews were saved by obeying the Mosaic Law, and he has some some confusing things and some erroneous things that he has in there in Law versus Grace. Then I come to the NIV Study Bible. Now, this is a study Bible is study notes plus a translation. So some people get confused on that. They'll say, well, my translation's a Ryrie study Bible. No, Ryrie didn't do the translation. Ryrie just wrote the notes. Or or I have the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. Well, Tim LaHaye didn't write the translation. He just wrote the notes. So uh, a study Bible is just referring to the study notes, who wrote the study notes in the Bible. The NIV Study Bible is related to the New International Version, of course. They did a massive marketing campaign when they came out with that. I mean, when, when the NIV came out in about 78 or 79, they had concordances, they had encyclopedias, they had all kinds of things across the board, all kinds of study tools related to and based on the NIV all hit the market at the same time. So that just captured the marketplace. It was a tremendous uh, marketing endeavor. 
The NIV Study Bible is well put together. It's well organized. It's easy to read. In contrast to the Nelson Study Bible, you can't read it. I mean, they've paragraphed everything, and the, the verse, verses are superscripts that are so small, I have to have a magnifying glass to read it. And it's just, it's, there's so much data in the, in the uh, Nelson Study Bible that it's just crammed too much in there. I mean, the, the structure's hard to read. But the content's good. The NIV has great organization, a lot of tremendous notes. The notes are extensive. They have very good maps and charts in there. But it comes from a more eclectic evangelical framework. They have, it's not just dispensationalists or premillennialists who are involved in translating the NIV. So there's uh, a broader uh, perspective. What they'll do is they'll tell you where there are three views on this passage. But they don't, the study notes won't come to a conclusion on these th- three views. So you should have a good study Bible. You should have a good translation, NASB or New King James. And you should read on a regular basis. This is, should be a central part of every believer's life. This is a Word of God. We should know the Word of God. Because it's meditating on the Word of God that leads us into deeper understanding and application of the Word. God has given us to us in a remarkable way. We have all this history and poetry and wisdom literature. Why did God reveal it this way? Why didn't He just give us a grocery list of do this and don't do that? Because by giving it the way He did, it forces us to stop and think and to engage our minds in the study of the Word and to come to application. God doesn't want robots who just memorize a bunch of lists. He wants his people to study the word, to reflect upon it, and to see how these historical narratives, how the wisdom literature, how the epistles, how that information, given the way it's given, can apply to any culture and any time context throughout, uh, throughout history. So it doesn't minimize the thinking of an individual. It challenges our thinking. God wants people who are actively engaged mentally with His revelation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for our study of Your Word this morning. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. We thank You for God the Holy Spirit who is our guide and teacher who helps us to understand Your Word. And we thank You for the many scholars and theologians and for the scribes that went on before us who were responsible for preserving your word, copying your word, so that it could be available for us today, for the uh, theologians who spent hours and hours in candlelight uh, pouring over your word and writing uh, volumes that increase our understanding of what you have given us. We pray that you would challenge us with the importance and the centrality of your word in each of our own lives. Father, we too pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin in each of our lives. Every sin we've committed and every sin we will commit. Nothing was left out. His death was complete and sufficient for every sin so that there's nothing left for us to do other than to trust in Christ's work on the cross for our salvation. Scripture says it's clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning, that God the Holy Spirit would make these things real to each of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.